title is, is the one of, about Bourdieu and, and, and the concepts. And we, we've divided this into two. When Jeff invited uh, me to participate and contribute to this, um, we thought it, I, I spoke with Kieran and we thought it would be a nice idea to divide this in two. So I'm doing, if you like, a, a beginner's guide to some of the very basic concepts. These are the sort of things that you even find covered in, in the A-level sociology syllabus, for instance. So, you know, some of you may have familiarity with that. It's always difficult to know just quite how to pitch this, um, the, the, the level at which we're doing this, because we, we're unaware of who's going to come along and their own level of expertise and so on. So hopefully there's something for everyone in here. So if you're a total novice to the ideas of Bourdieu, you've just heard about, about him and a lot of people who are influenced by him. He's certainly one of the key thinkers in the sociology of education and his influences go through a lot of UK scholars as well, people like Diane Ray, Stephen Ball and some of the kind of highest profile sociologists of education draw heavily upon Bourdieu. There's also uh, a, a lot of younger scholars coming through and newer scholars coming through who are drawing on Bourdieu. Now I don't put myself amongst that, that crowd but Kieran is and, and there's, a, a uh, there's a Bourdieu study group within the sociology um, uh, uh, the BSA, the British Sociological Association, and a lot of the young scholars are, are going through that as well. Okay, so I'm introducing you to some fairly basic tools, uh, and then Kieran's going to go beyond that and look at some of the more complicated ideas. And then we're going to have a discussion uh, about making use of Bourdieu's theories uh, for the final half hour. So, in terms of my input, I'm going to give you a little bit of background context. I'm going to briefly mention a project I was involved in which ran for seven years and finished last summer, called Paired Peers, which I'll be drawing upon quite heavily uh, in terms of this, uh, this presentation. Um, we're going to look at working definitions of some of the key terms, capital. We're going to look at the interplay of capitals and social class, uh, how the, the notion of capital is used in educational research. Then I'm going to go on to habitus. And then the final kind of uh, theoretical idea I'm, I'm going to introduce is the idea of knowing the game and playing the game and what do we mean by this okay so that's that's me um, and then we go and Kieran will then be taking this forward and doing some of the uh, some perhaps the less commonly known but equally useful concepts that Bourdieu has come up with so that's a, a, a picture of the the man himself um, just to kind of frame this uh, Bourdieu his whole kind of uh, theoretical project, if you like, can be seen as, as a reaction to some of the dominant ways of seeing and researching and understanding society at the time. So the idea of phenomenology and also of structuralism. Um, and he's also seen as, as coming out of the whole kind of project of late modernity and this battle that's going on between the notion of structure and agency. So as individuals in society, how much agency, how much control do we have over our lives or how much are we controlled by aspects of our identity, whether it's class or gender or ethnicity or locality or whatever. And so there's been this battle in sociology and forgive me, you know, I know not all of you are sociologists by academic study, although I'd maintain everyone's a sociologist anyway, you know, <laughs> but uh, uh, I, I certainly am. Um, but this notion of how much free will or freedom to act do we actually ha actually have. So Bourdieu is very useful in taking these, these ideas further. Others, uh, th main theorists, have talked about this. Margaret Archer's talked a lot about this relatively recently. Maybe a name you've come across in some of your reading. Uh, Anthony Giddens, Beck, Bauman, some of these kind of great theorists of, of, of society. So from his kind of background, if you like, his ontological position, Bourdieu is seen as a kind of structural constructivist, which we'll be exploring a little bit um, towards the back end of, of, of this afternoon's sessions. Um, and so his whole kind of project is about bridging the gap between structure and agency and trying to tease out things and explain things. And Bourdieu is very good. He gives us theoretical tools which we can then apply in a number of settings. As I suggested, he's used a lot in study of education and sociology of education, but his ideas are also used in other fields as well, including uh, popular culture and photography 
and health and illness we were talking about before and other kind of areas of, of academic study as well. So he's wary of this notion of spontaneous sociology of just trying to come up with, with uh, immediate explanations and so on and he wants to kind of more, more of a, a, a systemized approach to trying to study and understand society. And the, the key kind of theoretical tools use, uh, that he's, he's developed is the notion of habitus, the notion of capital, and the notion of field. And so we'll be exploring this, starting off with uh, this, this part, and then Kieran will be taking this on further. And then this is often as expressed as, as, as Kieran suggested earlier. You can suggest habitus and capital and field are mixed up and uh, together, added together, and you end up with kind of practice or social practice, how we behave. So in terms of the background context then, uh, Bourdieu, uh, his understanding of class, uh, social class is about how individuals are positioned in social spaces uh, relative to one another. And for Bourdieu, the position we occupy within a social space um, can be or is influenced and largely based upon the notion of capital and what we mean by capital and the different forms of capital to which people have access. Now this first part is going to be slightly interactive in that I'm going to get you to do some thinking as well and come up with some suggestions shortly so there's a kind of heads up about that. Uh, next I'll just give you very brief overview of this project that I'm drawing largely largely from. It was called Paired Peers. Uh, we, we recruited cohorts from the two universities in Bristol. Um, so we recruited undergraduates during their induction week in 2010 and we followed the same group, the same young people from when they were 18 or 19 in induction right through to uh, last summer when they're all in their mid-20s and most of them have made it into um, post-graduation employment or further study. And we were comparing students at the University of the West of England, where I work, and the University of Bristol. And it was a collaborative project with academics from both of these institutions. And we were interested, using a kind of Bourdieuian framework, or some people say Bourdieuian and so on, there's other ways of, of suggesting, oh yeah, Bourdieuian, uh, the type of capitals people bought with them into university. So what did they turn up at university with? Because they those capitals also influenced their choice of university, their choice of subject, um, where, you know, where in the country they wanted to study, and so on and so forth, as well as it had also influenced their, 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 tra uh, their transition from school or college into university, and also what went before. So we're interested in what they brought with them, in terms of economic, social and cultural capital, what they acquired during their time at university, and how they set about doing so. Were they constantly concertedly seeking to cultivate some of these capitals or did they acquire them almost by accident either knowingly or unknowingly which I'll, I'll explain a bit subsequently and we then looked at how they use these capitals in terms of transition into the gra graduate labour market and to do this the, the kind of underpinning uh, intention was to explore the manner in which universities might promote or hinder social mobility. Now social mobility is often a, a tricky idea. Everyone says, broadly speaking, politicians, commentators, we're all in favour of social mobility. But that tends to be when it's upward. Yeah? It's very few people, particularly those from a fairly privileged position, who say, yeah, I'm all for social mobility, people going down. It doesn't happen. You know, there's if and you, you can imagine that unless you see society as having far more space at the top than it does at the bottom in terms of hierarchies. I always think society, you know, social mobility should be, uh, should be kind of governed and controlled by someone like one of the doormen on a nightclub or something, and it's one out, one in. You know, if someone's going to get promoted up and they're going to make it from a council estate and end up on the boardroom or something, then they need to be replacing someone who's gone down. But quite how people stop going down itself is a very interesting um, area. Uh, and we were talking about the idea of, of the... We know about the, uh, the glass ceiling, and we were talking earlier, Kieran and I, about the kind of floor, what stops people going downwards. And uh, Kieran likes the idea of a concrete floor, because it's, you know, very solid, you can't see through it. I like the idea of a glass floor, you know, and it's a term that 
that I used I got in, in publication in 2011 and it was mentioned in the uh, in the Milburn report, one of the social mobility reports, although it was wrongly attributed to someone else in 2012, <laughs> some American academics. Now, I certainly don't think they read my original things. So they didn't plagiarise me, but it's annoying when you think this, this big government report is citing this idea that you were the first one, seemingly the first one to get into print. But there you go. I'm not bitter. Um, <laughs> so the examples I'll be using is, is drawing largely from this project, uh, the Paired Peers project which again, some of you I know are familiar with, others less so. So let's go on to get you do some talking for a moment. What I want you to do is kind of come up with, just for a couple of minutes, an idea, what do we mean by capital? So either do it on your own or, or talk with someone sitting near you. What do you understand capital to mean to Bourdieu? And what types of capital does it refer to? Now, if you were paying attention earlier, you'll know three of them. Um, there may be some more as well. Okay, I'll give you a couple of minutes. Okay, now, apologies for uh, cutting short the discussion. There will be opportunities to continue this, okay? Uh, and there will be more questions uh, coming at you in, in the, within the next half hour or so. But, and we don't have time to obviously ask everyone, but it's not that I'm validating some people rather than others, so forgive me. Uh, but who, who would like to offer uh, a, a kind of short working definition of, of, of the notion of capital? Yeah, we often talk about them in terms of advantage, or in sense, I suppose you could say, a lack thereof is a, you know, then disadvantage is you. Yeah, good. Okay. So we had, uh, so the three kind of dominant forms of capital we talked about in Bourdieu's work are economic, cultural and social, and uh, they, they were suggested previously. Does it, has anyone heard of other, other words, uh, capital prefaced by another word? Yeah? Linguistic. Linguistic capital, yeah? Ethnic capital, yeah, good. Emotional. Sorry? Emotional. Emotional capital, yeah. Academic. Academic, yeah. Spiritual. Spiritual. Yeah, so all of these, and there's others. I've got a few others coming up as well, but, you know, these, these are all used. Now, Bourdieu didn't necessarily come up with these himself, but, you know, Bourdieu stopped writing some while ago, you know, because death intervened, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but others have taken up the mantle, in a sense, and, and taken his ideas forward and thought about them, perhaps, in, in areas that he hadn't really applied them. So we'll be looking at some of those as well. Okay, so 
the, the slides uh, that follow are drawn from and, and are an adaptation in some cases of some of the content from a, a book from the Paired Peers Project that uh, is written by a team of six of us and uh, Anne-Marie Bathmaker is the, the first name, so I'm, I'm one of the Al. Um, and it's also data that comes from the project as well. So let's look first of all at economic capital very quickly. Um, it's about financial resources and it can be institutionalised in terms of ownership of property for instance. In essence, you know, if you want a kind of half sentence definition, it's what you own or what you earn. So it's about money and wealth. You know, there's a difference between income and wealth. You know, some people may be cash rich, but, you know, income poor or whatever. So, and it can be used, as colleague at the, uh, over there was saying, it can be used to trade. You know, you, you can spend it to acquire other forms of capital. So if you think about, say, someone who um, came from a... a a socially economically disadvantaged background but ended up quite wealthy they for their they could then spend money buying access to certain things which have other forms of capital so they could send their kids to private school for instance which would then give the kids a different form of <coughs> cultural capital they could maybe join clubs and societies they can travel to certain places they can take up leisure activities that have more of a social cachet in terms of different hierarchies Social capital, in a sense, is about networks. You know, we used to talk about the old school tie and, and some of those things, of cronyism and, you know, some of these things that are bounded around in the media. Um, and it's referred to sometimes, you know, by Bourdieu as a, a title of nobility. So it's, you know, how, how you're seen by other people because of who you know and so on. So it's, in a sense, it's, it's who you know. And again, you can, through having... Uh, access to significant economic capital, you can get to know people who are in positions of power who can then help advance and, and help your accumulation of further sorts of capital. Now, one instance, this is drawing on a quote from one of the participants in our, in our project, this guy Nathan, who we quote quite a lot. So he's middle class, he's at University of Bristol, and he's studied law. I'll give you a moment to read that. So, Nathan, a few of you giggling away. Nathan is someone who was strategic, highly strategic in terms of acquiring and mobilising forms of capital. Any advantage he could use to lever a benefit for him, he would. He came from a provincial background. His parents are both GPs. Nathan's obviously a pseudonym. Um, so his provincial background, parents are GPs, so they're self-employed, but they move in fairly high circles within the environment they live in. And he wanted to work in the city. He wanted to work in finance. Now, he knew that doing a law degree at uh, you know, a prestigious university was a good way to get into the city and into finance. But he also knew he had to do more than just get the degree. He knew he had to cultivate his CV. And he was more strategic than probably any of our other 89 participants in doing so. So we draw on Nathan quite a lot in some of our writing. Um, so his mum and dad had an accountant. So uh, he asked his dad to you know, arrange a favour. So he has on his CV uh, summer vacation job in accountants. So you've got work placement in an accountant. Now by his own admission, he spent two days there. Okay, and he spent most of the time drinking tea and talking about playing golf. He did very little accountancy, but on his CV, it said summer of you know, 2009, worked in an accountant for you know, work experience and so on. So he's got that little sparkly bit on his CV, which helps sets him apart. He did this through his social networks. Using the social networks, he was looking to work, uh, get a job in one of the investment banks in the city, not, you know, not too far from where we are now. And he had a kind of uh, league table of ones he wanted to work in. He had his top eight sorted out. And he knew people who worked in three of these different banks through family connections. And he was able to make the most of those to get in uh, and speak to people and get internships and so on and so forth. So this is a kind of um, exploitation of his social capital that Nathan was able to undertake. 
If we talk about cultural capital, for me, cultural capital is perhaps the most interesting of them. Uh, it's the most detailed. And it's often, you know, I used to teach A-level sociology, and you'd see some of the poorer essays say, oh, the working class have no cultural capital. Okay, that's not true. Everyone has cultural capital. But the cultural capital you have is valued differentially in different settings. Now, it may well be that kind of, you know, if there is a kind of dominant working class form of capital, it's not necessarily valued in formal education settings. But it has traction and currency and value outside. You know, I went to, you know, I went to a comprehensive school in Essex. Um, I did, you know, academically reasonably well. But I also know from my own experience that you need to do other things to fit in, you know, and to get on with other people. So I played football and I was, you know, I wasn't brilliant at it by any means, but I understand a lot about football and I still follow football. So I can find myself now, as I did last night, in a situation where I'm in a pub watching football with, you know, a predominantly male working class audience and I can talk the relevant language. Yeah? So I know about football and I know about you know, who the players are and tactics and so on and so forth. Now that is a form of cultural capital that I can use either, you know, consciously or otherwise to get on in certain situations. It's not going to help me in my academic career, yeah, but it still helps, you know, more widely. So I think it's all too easy to dismiss people as having poor cultural capital and lack of aspirations and some of these kind of deficit models we see about working class people. <coughs> Cultural capital can be institutionalised, again, through things like academic qualifications. It can be objectified through ownership of certain goods. I heard someone uh, talking at lunchtime about, you know, uh, possibly going and buying some goods to help with their cultural capital and so on while they're in London for the day. You know, and so again, so having certain items or possessions have certain value and so on. And again, you know, there's, there's been some really interesting work, people like Louise Archer, has done some work around uh, young people and their attitudes to education. There's a really good paper, again, it's on the other <laughs> syllabus now. It talks about, I'm, I'm a Nike type of person. You know, I don't, people like me don't go to university. So it's about young people who are interested in sports branding or, or certain types of activity which they see as uh, oppositional almost to, to working hard at school and going on to university. Now, cultural capital, and this is where a kind of transition takes place in a sense can be embodied so we we live this it's not just things like the clothes we wear or how we talk our accents whether we can speak foreign languages and all of this this is all part of it but there's more to it than that it's, you know presentation itself and so on and it can be embodied and then we talk about the form of habitus now habitus um i was talking with kieran before you know habitus sounds like other words the fact I've italicised it is because it's, it's Latin. You know. uh, some of my own cultural capital coming out there. Uh, recently acquired. Um, <laughs> but it, it, it's similar to habit and it's similar to habitat. Now habitat is you know, not just a designer furniture store that's now closed, but it's, it's the environment, isn't it? It's where we live. It's our immediate in environment and the conditions in which we live. And habit you know, is, is, is what we do uh, naturally almost, you know, habitually. So it's, it's, it's kind of related to these, but it can be, it's manifested as a kind of disposition of the, the mind and the body. <coughs> so cultural capital takes numerous forms, but they're varied, valued differentially. You know, so the contrast between what's valued in school classrooms and what's valued in the school playground between other kids is quite significant. You know, as a kind of aspiring middle-class uh, arrivista, uh, my, my, my two kids, we used to take them off to the museum and the zoo and blah, you know, give, watch documentaries with them and do all these kind of culturally enriching activities and so on. But I wouldn't expect them to necessarily go and start talking about these in the playground to other kids who didn't necessarily share those values and so on. So they need, again, to know how to, how to operate and how to live and how to get on with people from a range of backgrounds. So middle-class people by, you know, are sometimes seen as being fairly culturally omnivorous, you know, they, 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 they will take most things you know, and, and, and get, get benefit from them. So some of these, and again, this is another interesting extension of Bourdieu's work, some forms of cultural capital, like academic abilities or capabilities or qualifications, aren't necessarily recognised as capital, but they're perceived 
as just a kind of, you know, it's, it's a legitimate competence, it's what you've earned, it's what you deserve. You know, it's the whole discourse behind things like meritocracy, bringing back grammar schools and so on. You know, that it's about reinforcing social advantage and social closure. Now, one of my colleagues, Nicola Ingram, uh, who was on paired peers with me, has done some work with Kim Allen, and they've talked about this idea of social magic. Uh, when they're looking at the recruitment strategies of some major corporations, they're looking at, uh, was it Google? Um, what's, what's the other one they've done? It was an writing firm, yeah. And the Googliness was Yeah, and this notion of Googliness. So it's awful, you know, forgive me if anyone's a big fan of Google, but um, there's, there's this whole thing about you've got to be quirky and all the rest of it, but then you're asked questions at interview. And if you're well-traveled, and if you've been to museums, and if you know the kind of cultural reference points and things that, that you're asked to interview, you've got far more chance, chance of getting through. So on one level, they're trying to say, oh, it's totally open to everyone. And many employers do this sort of thing. You know, you hear about university interviews, admissions interviews, and if, you don't, if they feel your accent or your background doesn't quite fit, then perhaps you're not offered a place. And so this is kind of a form of... of symbolic capital and it's transformed into kind of just a well it's it, it's not it's not about rewarding advantage the people who, who who draw upon this or who seek to use this as a selection tool or a filtering suggest that everyone has access to knowledge about the world well yeah perhaps they do but some people have better access than others excuse me and again this is another clever extension of it the notion of hereditability. So cultural capital is a major contributor to intergenerational reproduction of class through all, all, all levels of strata. However, as Bourdieu suggests, the social conditions of its transmission and acquisition are more disguised than those of economic capital. So we all know about you know, people who may inherit money or property from uh, relatives or you know, things may be given over to them either through a will or you know, in the, as, as a gift or whatever. But, and that can, you know, in a sense, there's a physical thing and it can be seen as you know, and, and measured and it's reported for you know, tax purposes or whatever. But cultural capital is transmitted in a far less visible manner. But for Bourdieu, and many of us who use Bourdieu's ideas, is perhaps at least as, as important as economic capital. So in terms of capitals and social class, some of you may be familiar with the Great British Class Survey, which came out in 2011. Um, and it was an online survey, and there was some sort of brief TV shows about it and so on. And there was 160,000, or just over 160,000, responses to people filling in details about their earnings, about their wealth, about their leisure activities, their hobbies, and also about who they knew, their social networks as well. And you had to fill in this online questionnaire, and then they used this to come up with a typology of new forms of social class in 21st century Britain. So the team was led by Mike Savage and Fiona Devine. It's a big team. Um, lots, of, lots of people, lots of the kind of younger um, academics who are in, informed by Bourdieu as well are part of this. And they've developed this new model of social class. And you can still find this stuff. There's, there's journal, academic journal articles about it. There's a, there's a book in Pelican, uh, which is called 20, uh, class, Social Class in the 21st Century. Uh, it's very accessible. Um, and they use this, and it's, and it's drawing very heavily upon the ideas of Bourdieu to come up with a new formulation of social class. So it's not simply about, say, what used to be the registrar general scale, about uh, blue collar and white collar and intermediate and all the rest of it. It's not just about the kind of SEC, uh, the social economic uh, classification systems and so on the government has used since. It's a kind of more subtle and things about <coughs> consumption patterns as well as production, economic production. It's not just how you earn money, but it's how you spend money and who you spend money with and what you spend it on. Yeah. And this is all part of, a, if you like, a cultural turn that's happened in social class research relatively recently, and people influenced by Bourdieu have made a, a key contribution to this. There have been efforts to try and quantify cultural capital, 
which is massively different. So you have people, so you fill in a questionnaire. How often do you listen to, you know, which radio stations do you listen to? And then you get points for certain ones more, you know, and all the rest of it. Now, it's in, very problematic, I think. I, uh, I wrote something with my colleague Neil Harrison about this, critiquing this uh, article that we read and we saw presented at a conference where they came up with this thing and, uh, by uh, Noble and Davies and they claimed that you know, the, the cultural capital didn't have much influence on, on the uh, transition of young people into post-compulsory education and so on. But they came up with a, a measuring instrument that we felt was fundamentally flawed. And it's notoriously difficult nowadays you know, with the media, for instance, and with access to certain things culturally to, to evaluate which things are more important than others um, or which things are seen as more valuable than others. But I think that's what this, this study tried to do and certainly has done more successfully than, than perhaps more, uh, smaller attempts with a smaller kind of empirical base. So in terms of coming on to the idea of buying capitals, picking up on what was said over here, these, these can't be totally reduced to economic capital, yeah, cultural and social. But for Bourdieu, uh, they, they, there's an interlinking. They're intrinsically tied to economic capital, although this connection is often disguised. <coughs> so for Marx, you know, obviously Marx was writing... Uh, again, a, a very long time ago, um, and hasn't had a chance to update his own ideas, but you know, other people have tried. But for Marx, in terms of social class and, and, and position in society, economics are still very much to the fore. But for people uh, drawing on Bourdieu, you know, they, they're looking at other things as well. And it's not just money that gives power, there's other things as well, or status. So, coming back to what other types of capital do we see employed in educational research? I didn't write down, you know, I didn't pre-guess all the ones that came up. We had ethnic capital as well and linguistic and, and one or two others. But we have, you know, the, the kind of, the key ones there, symbolic capital, emotional capital, I think someone said, experiential capital. And there's other, sometimes more esoteric ones. There's a woman called Catherine Hakim who's written about erotic capital, for instance and about which, you know, got kind of poo-pooed by a lot of uh, commentators. But in a sense, you know, there, there are things around people's personalities. So if people are seen as being especially charismatic or attractive or whatever, there may be something that, that they can then use. You know, we often, you know, you see these occasional studies, oh, taller people earn more in companies than shorter people, you know, things like this. And so, you know, there's, there's other things that are perhaps hidden. But the danger, perhaps, of just trying to dilute this all too much is that it loses its, its, its power, its theoretical analysis, if you kind of dilute it and just, you know, suff put the word capital as a suffix on everything. You know, it's, it, it loses its power. Okay, now back over to you. Looking at habitus, then. What do you understand habitus to mean for Bourdieu? And then come up with some examples of how our own habitus may influence our lives. Okay, so again, I'll give you, say, three minutes to, to do something on this.
Definition of habitus. And it will have to be one of you because Kieran's just taken a short break. So, uh, <laughs> so it's gonna, yeah. Uh, we we talked about um, environment and community. Yeah. Different communities give us access to different uh, capital. Yes. Yes, they do. Yeah. Okay. Anyone else? Yeah. Yeah. We we raised two important words: disposition and choice. Yeah. Okay. So good. People are predisposed to think in certain ways, to make certain choices, simply because of the Because of the environment and the socialization and, and yeah. the families they've grown up in or the communities they've grown up in. Yeah, good. We also talked about physical habitus, so the way your body language, the way you talk, all of those, so it's partly about mindset, how you see yourself, but also about how that manifests. Yeah. yeah, and so how other people see you, so there's an embodied aspect to it as well. And it's also, you know, it, it's an individualised um, aspect as well. But there's also perhaps a kind of organisational or, or institutional aspect to Habitus as well, which, which we'll come on to. Okay, good. So, Bourdieu's definition, uh, and all, all the references are at the end, um, he defined it as a, a system of dispositions, that is, of permanent manners of being, seeing, acting, thinking, or a system of long-lasting rather than permanent, so durable rather than permanent, and Kira's going to be talking about that later, a bit of a spoiler there, sorry, uh, schemes or schemata around structures of perception, conception, and action. So again, you know, these are quite long words, but I think that, you know, it's it pretty much similar to the type of thing we were talking about. So it's ways of thinking, ways of being, ways of seeing, ways of understanding. Uh, and they're informed, they can change, they're not permanent. You know, so if you go through changes in your life, you know, moving around, going through education, uh, living in different countries perhaps, or even different parts of the same city even, you know, you, you're, these things may change a bit, but there's still a kind of, you know, arguably a core to it that we've, we've come through from our, our, our early upbringing. And then other people have taken this on, and Edgerton and Roberts talk it, about it being a learned set of perceptions, or uh, sorry, preferences or dispositions by which a person orientates to the world. So it's about tastes and practices and dispositions. It's about language and how we carry ourselves. And Bourdieu also talks about this kind of embodied nature of it. It involves ways of standing, speaking, walking, and thereby feeling and thinking. Can I ask, when you say language, does that include things like language associated with certain professions and mm. acronyms that people use? Yeah, and vocabulary and uh, the specificities of vocabulary in, di in different contexts and things. Yeah. 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 Okay, and then there's this notion of an educated habitus. And Nash, for instance, talks about an educated habitus which involves characteristics around a positive orientation to schooling, high aspirations, positive academic self-concept, a desire to identify and be identified as educated. And this is also class-specific, and it's about a social class understanding of education and its values and dispositions towards it, and how people 
value different types of education. You know, we hear certainly in post-compulsory education, further education, where I began my teaching career, you know, the academic vocational divide, we hear a lot about, which has big significance. You know, I remember uh, name dropping here, what's her name? Um, Ruth Silver, who, who did the uh, sort of review of uh, further education, talked about the problem with further education colleges is that no politician sends their kid there, you know. So they're the sort of places they drive past. If their kids are going to stay on past 16, they tend to stay on at schools or whatever. So people, and, and there's this divide where you look at other com countries like Germany and so on, where vocational education is valued in a very different way. And this is also around manifestations of, of cultural capital as well. Okay, the, the notion of institutional habitus, I, I, I kind of mentioned previously, and again in reading you may come across this. And this can be around educational context, and it can also be about other social contexts, other institutions as well. You know, I was talking with Kieran earlier on, you know, somewhere like a prison. I've got a doctoral student who's doing research in, uh, in prison, around prison education and so on. And there's very much, you know, a kind of institutional habitus around a prison or, you know, a, various jobs, you know, so it could be medical doctors or it could be police officers or it could be the army or whatever, you know, there's this kind of institutional habitus and view, but it's often used by some people, Diane Ray, for instance, has used this quite a lot, um, around universities, and we could say schools as well, but we're focusing on, on higher education here, universities having a feel, a distinct character in terms of class, ethnicity, etc. So, you know, so if you were to go around Within 10 miles, there's probably, I don't know, 15 different universities from where we stand today. And if you went round each of those universities and spent just a, you know, half an hour in them and just watched the students come and go and listen to them speak, look at how they were dressed and the sort of things they were talking about and so on, you'd feel, that, and, and, and their kind of uh, makeup in terms of, you know, your, your understanding of social class through accent or ethnicity and whatever, they'd, they'd come to be very different, you know, very different places. But even within a given institution, there's different kind of sub-institutional habituses as well. Yeah, my youngest son goes to a further education college. It's a split-site campus. And the campus he goes to has got performing arts, so there's drama and dance, fine art and sports. You know, and you could look at any student and guess which, which one of those three curriculum areas they're in, not just because they're clothes, but even, you know, something about them. And so those, you know, so there's these kind of, so you can apply this in those types of settings as well. So institutional habitus acts with individual habitus and it brings someone down to feel, do I feel at home? Do I fit in here? And this is what we hear about people who go to, you know, people from working class backgrounds, perhaps who go to elite universities for an open day or for an interview or something. You know, I've heard quite a few uh, Friends of mine who've got pet, uh, sorry, got kids who are just of the age of going to university now. Oh, they went for an interview at so and so, but they they didn't like it. They didn't fit in. Everyone they met was posher than they were, and, and all the rest of it. You know, and there's this sense, and this is one of the things we were interested in in comparing UWE and the University of Bristol in the same the same city. And Bourdieu talks about having being a fish in water or a fish out of water. You know, fishes swimming in the water in a sense don't know they're in water. They don't see the water, they don't know anything else, you know, that's just how it is, yeah? But they know if they're in the wrong place or the wrong type of water, I, you know. I do go fishing as well, but I don't want to extend the angling metaphor too far. I put in saltwater fish in freshwater lakes or something like that. So, so the idea of being, of feeling you belong. There are critics though, people who are, who come from, if you like, a Bourdieuian tradition, there's a guy called Will Atkinson, who's at the University of Bristol, who's written quite a lot about Bourdieu and social structures and so on. And he's, he's critical of the notion of institutional habitus. He thinks it, it doesn't really belong. But others have, have offered a rejoinder to this, in, including Kieran and uh, Nicola Ingram, a, a colleague of ours as well. Now, the final thing I'm looking at then is the idea of knowing and playing the game. And what do we mean by this? And, and it's about how, how these young people, for us on the Paired Peers Project, how they came to university knowing what they had to do. It wasn't just about getting a degree. If you want to get a really, one of these elite jobs, one of the very competitive jobs, you had to do a lot more than that. A lot more than you did in my day when I was at university, certainly as an undergraduate. So, so we talk about the game. So, so this is a, a quote from Bourdieu. It's a space in which a game, 
game takes place, a field of objective relations between individuals or institutions who are competing for the same stake. So if we're talking about people competing for graduate jobs, and Kieran's done a lot of work on this as well, um, it's about how they how much they know in advance what they have to do. This is the sort of thing, you know, we're invited to talk to on conferences around employability and widening participation and so on as part of the, the project I've been in. Um, and we talk about what universities can do to perhaps inform those who aren't from the advantaged backgrounds where they t necessarily take this sort of thing for, for granted. It's not part of their, their, their habitus or not part of their cultural capital to know about this. So it's about students who can maintain social advantage do things like extracurricular activities and internships. And so some of the people, we, uh, Nicola and I have written a few, few things about some of the <coughs> generally young men who were seeking to work in the city. Uh, and we had a, a group of them. And Nathan, who we saw before, was successful when he got in. But they weren't all. Now, some of them had that idea. And they went to university and thought, what's the best thing I can do to get a job in finance? are study economics okay so they studied economics they focused on getting the best degree they could at the end of the third year they maybe got a first class degree but they hadn't done all of networking they hadn't done the internships they hadn't done these other things they needed to do to cultivate ready access into into those um areas you know it's like people who you know young people you know uh, who are at school and, and maybe they choose they're not advised in terms of their aspirations around university uh, the Russell Group talk about facilitative A-level subjects. You know, don't even talk about vocational qualifications because it's not a good way to get into a Russell Group university. But if you want to get into a Russell Group university, there's a list of A-level subjects that are more approved of than others. Yeah, and if you don't have at least two of these, you're unlikely to get in. Now, a lot of kids who may aspire to that and who may well have the potential to do that don't realise that and they're not told this at school, and their families don't know it, and no one they know has been to one of these universities, so they don't know it either. So they end up doing very well in A-levels, but the wrong sort of A-levels. Okay, so this is that type of embedded notion of you know, the knowledge, the habitus, the cultural capital, the way these things are, are understood. Yeah, you know, they may think, I want to work for the BBC, I'll do um, media studies, you know, which on the face of it, is a sensible thing to do. But if you look at things like the BBC graduate recruitment schemes, I would hazard a guess most people who get onto that have studied things like history or PPP at certain elite universities. They're not young working class kids who have done a BTEC in media and then gone to university and done a media studies degree. That's not how you get into the media. Who'd have known? Well, this is about the game. You know, this is knowing the rules of the game because they're not written down. You need to know people who are going to tell you it. So this notion of active, so people actively doing it or almost internalising this and not knowing, not realising what they're doing. They're doing this almost inadvertently. And this tends to be, this kind of notion of knowing and playing the game, it tends to further generate and help the accumulation of capital amongst the already advantaged. Now I wrote uh, uh, an article with Anne-Marie and with Nicola uh, from the project that was in the British Journal of Sociology of Education. It's called Knowing and Playing the Game. And we talk a lot about these internships and about how some of the undergraduates knew this is what they had to do. They had to cultivate these relationships and so on. But also, importantly, we're not ignoring the economics of it. Many of them were in positions whereby their families could afford to support them financially, which meant they didn't have to then get you know, 15, 20 hour a week jobs in bars or supermarkets or whatever. So they had the time to do these sort of things yeah so we're not ignoring that there's one really good case study which we've written about this uh, student who's known as Francesca in the study and she kept, she went ended up at UWE studying law she came from a very privileged background but didn't quite achieve what she anticipated in her A-levels so she didn't get into a first choice university but did some research and her, her dad's a professor at a, uh, a, an elite university and so he's connected and he knows the, the, he knows the game in a sense and he found out UWE's law school is seen as really high performing and all the rest of it. And so he encouraged her to apply there. She applied there and then she did things like she joined the sports teams and she you know, played uh, representative sport for the university. She was in clubs and societies. Um, she did internships all three years. She did an internship. Once she worked at a law firm, she wanted to be a barrister. Once she worked at a law firm in Bristol, a solicitor's firm. Once she worked in the city of London, at barrister's chambers. And then in the third one, she went to Australia for an internship for the summer. 
Now, not only did she not get paid to do the internship, she had to pay this Australian company to host her as an intern. Yeah? Now, you can only do that if you've got a serious amount of money behind you and you've got the connections. So they use connections from the families to get her into the barristers chambers and so on. So when she's seeking to get a job as a, you know, to enrol at the bar, um, she has, although you know, there might be a slight question mark about the precise university she went to, she got a great degree, she did all the extracurricular stuff, she did all these internships, you know, and in, in th through drawing on her capitals. And so she was advantaged massively compared to another student we study called Zoe, who was a working class woman from South Wales, who, none of whom's family has ever gone to university. She went to Bristol University from really difficult circumstances. Very few kids from her school even went to university, never mind Bristol, and she got great straight grade A's and all the rest of it, but got there to study law and felt she didn't fit in. She was socially disadvantaged. She was working 20 plus hours a week throughout her three years. Didn't do any internships because she didn't have time. She thought she could talk about all the transferable skills, acquired time management and budgeting and all the rest of it. But when she was going for jobs with law firms, they just didn't want to know. You know, none of that's relevant to what we're asking you to do. You know, she was naive. She didn't know the rules of the game. No one told her, you know, it's the rules aren't necessarily fair. So just coming to the end here. Um, so knowing and playing the game, uh, students mobilize capital in both active and internalized ways to position themselves. And this notion of agentics and making a deliberate choice or determined as opposed to you know um, your something determines how you act you know and, and, and so it's being Bourdieu's wary of having an overly deterministic view saying this happens because you're from this background or whatever okay this notion of self-awareness about acquiring and mobilizing resources was more apparent in some than others <coughs> but many of them still try to operate if you like within the game to secure their advantage uh, but some people know coming to university realizing that's precisely what they need to do back to Nathan again you know the rules of the game Nathan says get exposed to the companies and the industries you want to work for as early as possible research the opportunities which I did and summer internships which I did and got the job off the back of join societies and clubs and take up leaderships in those clubs that are relevant to a potential career if the society doesn't exist create it which he did just try and do everything to build up your CV. Add little bits of experience, little bits of training, competitions if you can. Make yourself look busy. And he certainly was. He also used to blog, and sometimes in his blog, chastise those students who he saw as not quite as committed or as hardworking as him. Interesting character. Meanwhile, Leo, working class young man at UWE studying economics, also wanted to work in the city, but he just focused on getting the best degree he could. So he only applied for a couple of jobs, in his third year, hadn't done internships, <coughs> hadn't really, in his own admissions, put as much effort into finding a graduate scheme as I could have. Um, but he's prepared to go anywhere over the country uh, and he's going to work for a large business. However, he felt he it's likely he was going to have to move back home, and sure enough, he did. So he didn't get a job in the city, in London, but he ended up, he moved back home, very few opportunities in the finance sector in the town he's from. Uh, but he subsequently came back to Bristol and now works as a finance officer in a large uh, public sector organisation. Okay, so that's it from me. I've got lots of references there which, which uh, will be available on the slides. And then there's a couple more slides saying, uh, explaining the kind of methodological approach to the Paired Peers project in case anyone's interested in that. We don't have to talk about it now, but they'll be on the slides once you receive them. Okay, that's it from me. Thank you.